Listen, I because I am into this sector, I, I, I follow the legal technologies, technology companies, and I can tell you that legal technology has the potential to substitute WTO panelists. That's how advanced legal technology, that's the power of, 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 of legal technology. That was Manuel Sanchez, the CEO and founder of Enloya. He also is a very good friend. Although we have known each other for many years, I tried to explore some new ground during our conversation. There are certainly many parallels between his professional life and mine, so hopefully this turned out to be insightful and interesting. Manuel talks about how he got interested in international public law, and specifically economic law, pretty early on in his career, and this brought him to Geneva. He also shares his experience working for the Mexican government, mainly in anti-dumping proceedings. After this, his LLM at Georgetown made him come back to Geneva where he worked at the WTO and this also happened to be the point in time where I met him. If this hasn't been interesting yet, he got bit by the startup, startup bug and he's currently trying to balance it out with his PhD studies. I hope you enjoy it. for some time but I think this I'm excited about this conversation because I, mean, I don't know what we're going to talk about but I'm literally looking forward to it. <laughs> How are you today? I'm very good thank you very much um, and thanks for the kind invitation. I also think that um, you know me very well so um, hopefully you can ask me interesting questions so that you can dig into aspects of of me that you don't know. Well I, we've had many conversations over the years very interesting conversations and maybe we'll touch upon those, but I'm also looking forward to maybe learning new things uh, about your views on many issues that are having, also about your life. So talking about your life, like you, you were born in Mexico City, is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Mexico City and um, in, uh, in a delegation, which is the, the how states are divided in, or the, the Mexican, the Mex Mexico city is divided uh, by delegations in the delegation called Xochimilco. Ah, Xochimilco. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up there. But near the, the lake or the... A little bit near the lake. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a pretty big delegation, but it, I was, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's in the area, really. Um, and then I was living there for, I think for five years, five years and a half. And then when I was six, I moved to, to the suburbs in, um, in, it's not Mexico City anymore, it's the state of Mexico, in the municipality of Naucalpan, which is uh, really in the suburbs of, of Mexico City, and that's, uh, that's kind of my origins. Mexico City is like quite a, I mean, yeah, you, I think in Mexico it's very different to other cities because you live in an area and that's pretty much where you conduct your life because it's like so big that you have to, you have to live in that section. Was that the case? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I I think I lived in a in a bubble. I lived in a in a in a in an area of of, uh, of Naucalpan that you know we we had everything. You know, we had um, you know the the supermarket, which is we had like three four supermarkets just uh, five minutes away by car. You know, we had the um, you know the the church and the tennis courts, the gyms and. Um, 
and mall, a very big mall uh, nearby. So it was really just like a bubble. I had no incentive, for example, on the weekends to go out, um, you know, to the city. At least, you know, to to do regular stuff. I think to have fun and to meet with my friends, especially when I was already in, in law school. Um, then of course I, you have to go to the to the city and, and, and meet with them in the bars and the restaurants there. But uh, other than that, I, I was uh, I lived in a bubble. <laughs> what about your environment, uh, living in the city, or perhaps even your family, drove you to become a lawyer? Uh, that's a very good question. I think the most the most important factor was my dad because he was a he's a he's a, a lawyer, and he's a he's a civil lawyer. He's also a, a criminal lawyer. And uh, just generally, uh, just a civil criminal lawyer, and, and he has a lot of experience. And he was a judge. He was a different type of judge, and, and uh, he had a, a very good reputation. And he he was he's really an inspiring person. I mean, he's really perhaps my, my biggest inspiration, intellectually speaking, because he he just uh, he has a, a brilliant uh, mind in my point of view. And he had this photographic memory, and he, he knows history, wow, incredibly. And he, he loves philosophy, and nowadays he loves physics. And and he's uh, you know he was talking about law all the time since I was really little. So I, I grew up with the idea of you know you know perceiving the law as, as something positive, you know. And, and he's uh, he's really a lover of of the law. You know, there are lawyers who do who do law because they want to. Money and, and my dad was not. It was that was not his drive. Of course, he had to feed five kids, right? Because we were, were five siblings. But ultimately, at the core of his personality and, and his character was the the, the the wanting to to use the law for uh, for for achieve positive results. And that was. Uh, I think that was uh, at the at the end. That was my the defining factor for me. Uh, but there was never like a. And there was never like a push from him to to the law. Was it just something that you saw, like around being around him. Uh, you know what? It was just uh, it was so natural. I think that at some point I wanted to be a doctor, yeah. uh, just like my my uncle. Um, he has a, another very uh, another feather figure that I have. So he was a doctor, and then so so I was between becoming a doctor or becoming a. Um, and a lawyer and then at the last year of high school you probably had this in Mexico as well um, so they made this examination of yeah. your personality and, and your intellectual abilities and which then I find them a bit uh, weird because I think that you you can push towards a result when you're doing the test I think so yeah you can, <laughs> you can like you're, you're already like, thinking something so you can like kind of like hint towards the direction you want to go exactly exactly I did several. I don't even remember what uh, what was the result, but eventually, I don't know if I disregarded the results or I just did what I thought I was gonna do from the beginning. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a unique thing. <laughs> well, in my case, it really was a game changer because I was in that moment. I really was going to become a a doctor. That was my. I mean, the the, the choices between doctor and lawyer were close to each other, but the the. My preferred option was was to become a doctor, and then I realized that I was I had very strong uh, abilities for like uh, you know text and and 
you know, everything that you need for to become a lawyer. And then they told me, you know, you would be a good lawyer, so why don't you go and become a lawyer? And I was like, okay, sure, that's like, <laughs> like a good plan. And then uh, back then, my, my best friend, he went to, he went to uh, ITAM University, which uh, back then I, I didn't even know um, this university, but apparently it was a it was a really good university. It's one of the best law schools in Mexico. Yeah, I, I didn't know this when I applied. So I, I, I he told me, you know, I'm going to go uh, this weekend to do the admissions exam, and you want to join? I was like, sure, let's do it. And so we were admitted, and we were admitted together, and uh, I, th I think like things were like so smooth, you know, towards. Um, becoming a lawyer and, and uh, starting uh, law school and uh, you know things things work out for me and when you when you were in law school was there any class that particularly interest you like how did you end up picking international economic law uh, you know what I always wanted to I, I, I always liked business law in general I was good with corporate law and, and um, yeah business law in general and then but I, I think it was not like super fulfilling. And then I discovered uh, international law, and that's when I realized, gee, I like international law and, and the, the, the power that you can have um, in making a, a change, driving a change at, at the global level through international lawmaking and international relations. And so, and I had a very good, uh, very good professors. Um, and in Itam, particularly Bradley Condon, who was... He was already there. Yeah, he was already there. He was my mentor and he was... Uh, he, we became friends. I mean, he's, he's a, he was a tremendous inspiration for me to, to become a, especially a WTO lawyer. I took NAFTA law and I took WTO law. As a class? As a class. Um, for as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was really unique. Yeah. You know? So I think... Uh, and, and then as part of the... As part of the the transition towards becoming a international trade lawyer, there was this competition, the Elsa Wood Court competition. You participated, uh, and I participated in that competition. That was really, really uh, something that really changed my my perspective in my career because I realized that I enjoyed the substance a lot. I loved the you know the adrenaline and and. Um, we went to Guatemala and then we we won some prizes and it was it was really good you know it was it was a really nice experience and I made really good friends as well and you know I developed a connection with my mentor Bradley and um, and you know I, I really loved it when I think when once you achieve positive results in something and you succeed in something I think it becomes you know it's it's a sign that you're heading in the right direction perhaps you should continue digging. So that's what I did. This is really interesting because in my in my case, even though I'm dealing also in international law and this is like my profession, I didn't it didn't come from from law school because it it was something foreign to me. Like in in my law school, we didn't have any any connection. This seemed like impossible to to be something that you could actually do on a day to day basis. But in your case, it was something that was already there, which was. Uh, it's very interesting. It's very interesting, actually, and, and I feel very lucky, honestly, because I think that uh, if 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 I if I look, um, you know, at the skills that I have, I think my foundations are, are strong. I mean, they were strong since since the moment I graduated as a WTO lawyer. I knew 
you know, the basics of the system, the principles of the system. And I think if you ask around um, lawyers from, from my generation or the, um, uh, the mid-level lawyers nowadays, they probably had to take, they took WTO classes, but they only until they were in the master's program, not at the undergrad level. And so I, th I think, uh, yeah, I think I was just lucky that they were teaching this class in, 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 uh, in Itam. I did have a class which was called, I think, International Law, but it was a mixture of a hundred things. And I think WTO was just, maybe we discussed it one day. One or class. <laughs> yeah, one class. But th that's really interesting that it's something that grew from there. And from there, what was your, your next professional step? I came to Geneva. Ah, you, after, after graduating, immediately after that? Uh, actually, before graduating, as part of the, as part of the studies, yeah. I came for a one-semester exchange program uh, that counted towards credits um, for, for my law school and graduation. Mm -hmm. So that was really, I think I, was the, I, went, I came here to Geneva for, for my last semester. And, uh, and I was working under the supervision of um, one excellent, excellent lawyer, uh, Carlos Vejar, um, from whom I, I learned a lot. He's an incredibly sharp person who taught me how to work well, uh, who taught me, he was a very rigorous um, supervisor and he taught me He taught me well. I was doing dispute settlement work and I was uh, going to the... At the Mission of Mexico. Yeah, the Mission of Mexico to the WTO. And so I was doing similar things to what probably you do today. You go to the DSB meetings and then you take notes of what happened. And, I was also but you were also involved in disputes. In yes, I was involved in disputes, um, in in two disputes. Of course, I was an intern. No? Of course, my involvement was <laughs> search for jurisprudence and make comments on this um, draft. But that's, I think, uh, that necessary awesome. for you to understand. Uh, I also started that way, by the way. Because yeah. you were also a <laughs> yeah. We we share like an intern. in general. I think that there's many parallels between our lives and professional lives, and I'm interested to see like, even though there's some parallels, there's also a lot of differences, like how I mentioned, how I got interested into, into this field. In your case, you were? In my case, I think it was more like coincidence, because I got, I was interested in intellectual property, and I got into WTO through IP and dispute settlement. But it was not something, like I talked to many people who their dream is to work in WTO or around WTO, like I mean, I maybe I feel bad saying this, but that was not that was never my dream. Mm. I mean, I'm happy that I'm doing it right now, but it was not like my ultimate goal. Yeah, was it your? In my case, it was. I think working for the WTO for me was a dream. When I came to Geneva years after that, it was a dream come true. You know, I think. But, it but it's true. Like having said that, I remember the first time I walked into the WTO. It felt like, well, I, because I also had worked at, at uh, WIPO, and both of these institutions, they felt like so grand, so like majestuous. Mm -hmm. Like they, f they felt like, at least that was my view, and I think this is something that happens in many legal traditions, Mexico being one, that we view the international order as something that's like uh, the best of us. Mm -hmm. Was that your experience? Because that's not the case in many countries. I think that in the U.S. they don't they don't have a similar view of these uh, international organizations. I mean, my view is that 
We see Mexico. I work for the Mexican government, so I can tell you also how we perceived you know, the, the WTO. We, we saw the WTO as an authority, really. I mean, um, it, when I was in, in my government, I was working for the Mexican uh, Trade Remedies Authority. And so one of my functions was to make sure that the trade remedy procedures that the authority was handling were compliant with WTO rules. So whenever um, I spotted something or, or um, that was a little you know, questionable under WTO law, and I suggested um, a change or an adjustment in the, in the draft decision, then 99% of the times they, they took it seriously. They took it seriously because I think the the perception that WTO that w, about the WTO is it's um, that you have to comply with those rules. I think that Mexico has a it's a it's very institutional. I think the Mexican government is very institutional and and they the government respects the international law. Um, but why do you think that is? Because I I think that this I've always thought about this and I don't really know why. But I am interested in hearing your opinion. Because in Mexico, and like in many, because I've talked to many Latin Americans, they also feel that way. They view these organizations as something that's, uh, that's binding, that's worth uh, respecting, that's uh, something valuable, that's maybe something that we should aim towards. And that's not the case, like I mentioned, like uh, when I was studying in the US, I was actually taking a class of intellectual, uh, intellectual IP law. Mm -hmm. And most of the law that we saw was actually domestic law, mm. but like mm. looking at it from uh, like how it was affected by like foreign organizations or foreign interests or foreign legislation or whatever, but it was always from the point of view of domestic law, and I think that's that permeates throughout the system. That's not the case. What what are your is your opinion similar to this? Why, what what do you think about it? I agree with your opinion. I think that's a very accurate uh, assessment of. Of the perception of, of international law in, in the in the U.S., I think, uh, to one extent, it responds to the fact that we have different systems. I mean, the, the U.S. and others, um, they have to international law has to be has to be um, transformed into domestic law. It's, uh, it doesn't exist on it, on its. I mean, it's not binding domestically on its own. It's it's uh, binding internationally, but not domestically. And in the case of Mexico, uh, international law is is applicable law on its own because we follow the, uh, the monolistic approach, and so I think I think that might um, that might um, explain why we have I guess more we, we see it as a, as a more uh, authoritative um, law because we it's, it's it's binding right it's binding domestically, um, but I think that it has implications throughout everything throughout the way that each country relates to this organization and the way that they negotiate and the way that they do everything with vis-a-vis -vis any international organization. Mm, I think so too. I mean, I, 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 it would be speculative to, to tell you why I think this is the case. I think, you know what, I think that we, it's, it can be a cultural thing. You know, as a society, we tend to be. I think Latin Americans we tend to be a little submissive uh, to international standards and international rules. We don't have. I mean, there's no superpower. Perhaps only only Brazil, 
might have a different view. I mean, if, if you at some point interview a Brazilian lawyer, they might have a different view. Um, even though Mexico has a, it's a very strong economy and it's, uh, I would say, in its in its uh, in its scale, it's it's kind of a superpower in the Latin American world. We are still very respectful of international law and international standards. So I think um, I think it's a cultural thing more than a, than. A it's not exclusive to Latin America, but yeah, I think it's a defining characteristic of Latin America. I mean, I think it's also similar in Africa and some African countries, and maybe some even Asian countries. And I think in Europe they are also respectful, but they also have their own views, which sometimes might not be the same, but they are respectful of the multilateral order. Yeah. And I'm not saying that other countries are not, but I think that just the approach towards it, it's, it's a bit different. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And I think that it's, uh, it's not only an issue of, of economic power. I think look at, uh, look at China, for example. China is a, it's an economic power, and, and nevertheless they are compliant with with the WTO rulings all the time. I mean, they have a very good track record in that respect, and so it, it's more about you know what the what the approach of, of the you know the cultural approach of lawyers or the ones who are handling or man managing a system uh, towards international law uh, is more than more than the power itself. I think. And you you eventually went to Georgetown Law School. How why did you decide to go to Georgetown? Uh, I wanted to study. I wanted to to study with John Jackson. I knew that he was already in a late stage of his uh, academic career, but uh, I heard I have I had heard that he had that he still had a brilliant mind, and you know I just wanted to be I just wanted to be taught by the best, who I thought by then was the best, and so that was that was my goal. Since I I, I decided to become a trade lawyer, I. I decided I didn't even have money to to go to Georgetown actually, so I just apply. I just started applying to universities and, and hoping for the best. I got a scholarship, or um, I don't come from a wealthy family at all. So so it was it was just um, one of my family members. He my my uncle, he was the one who uh, supported me, and then I, I was lucky that I got a, a a scholarship that supplemented part of my um, costs in Washington D.C. Um, but the, the the goal was for me to study with, with him, ultimately. I wanted to study with him and, and I enjoyed actually uh, learning from him. He, he indeed had a brilliant mind and I just was amazed by how many details of, of the WTO he had in his mind. I mean, even from before, from the get there, I mean, he, he was just a brilliant mind, honestly. I think he, I mean, he, he's one of the fathers of, of this strain of international law. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that he was, uh, from my understanding of, of the origin of the WTO is that it was, it was actually his proposal um, and that somehow he lobbied uh, with the Canadian government and then there was a, there was a, uh, you know, an accumulation of, of, uh, of will to, to move forward. To creating a WTO, but it was—I don't know if, if that's true or not. I mean, Even I at the time when it was happening, I, I think that uh, economic international law was not really was not really like um, an area of the law that was perceived as being one of the top areas. I think even now, maybe it's like the ugly duck of the <laughs> international law. Is that is that uh, is that accurate? 
I think so. I think so. I mean, I mean, if I mean, now that uh, when I studied the PhD, when I started the PhD, I realized I was surrounded by very intelligent um, colleagues, and you know, I, I, my perception was they perceived me as the the bad, you know, the bad <laughs> guy in the group because I was into WTO and economics and capitalist, capitalist law. And they were into they were into human rights and refugee law, and and others, right? So, uh, but it's not only about the subject, which that happens to me every day with my colleagues that do human rights and others that are like we're doing really a real job, and you're just <laughs> like doing something else. But I think also like the the way that the law was created, I, I think it's also perceived like a second tier um, body of law. Um, I, I maybe it's changing, right? Maybe it's changing as we speak. But I think that that was the general perception. That probably is the case. I I think that the WTO has uh, the the community. We have created this this narrative that the WTO is um, system specific. Um, you know, um, legal system, and I think to some extent that's the case. Um, scholars like um, even Professor Paulin have have challenged that assumption, and you know they have said you know we have to look at the WTO legal regime as as a component of a of a bigger picture. Which yeah, that, is was, that was his his PhD dissertation, no? yeah. which was a bit controversial, I think, from from the outside and maybe even from the inside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think back then, probably. I mean, I I, I cannot tell what actually happened now, but. I am sure that this is controversial today. I'm but I think it was instrumental in kind of changing today. that perception across other fields of law and also within the WTO. But it's true that we we live in this little bubble of WTO law and sometimes we don't see how how it affects or how it's viewed from the outside. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, and then when you were in Georgetown, What was your your next step? How did you want to actually be involved in WTO law? <clears throat> so before going to Georgetown, I was already working as a practitioner in WTO litigation. I was working for my government in the Mexican Investigator and Authority. I had a junior role, um, so I already had some some experience in that respect. And so when I finished the masters, I came back to Mexico. I started working for a law firm doing corporate work, corporate law work, um, which I actually enjoyed, and also working on anti-dumping proceedings. And then, but that was a very short period. I think I stayed there for like around five months. Which to me, anti-dumping is like one of the driest areas of uh, that's, that's, You know what, that's, that's a little bit true, but to some extent, I love it. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you, if you have been into trade remedies and anti-dumping law, it, it's really, for me, it's, it's one of the most interesting areas of, of WTO law because I think uh, it's so technical and it's multidisciplinary that I think uh, it takes time to, to learn it and to, download, to, to master it. But I think once you, once you do it, uh, then it's, it's really fascinating. I was lucky because uh, when I was in the, in the trade remedies authorities, in the authority, I was surrounded by technical people, you know, the economists, the accountants, and financial um, professionals. and every memorandum that I was preparing for you know, internal purposes, I always had inputs from the technical areas. And that for me, I, I learned so much from, from them. 
and um, and they educated me on some economic principles or some you know accountability principles and, and you, you basically you have no choice. I mean, if you work for this type of uh, governmental agency, you have no choice than to end up loving the, the subject matter. It is a, a community within a community. Uh -huh. And I think it's probably one of the most active areas in WTO law, the cases of anti-dumping and rules in general. I think they're like the bulk of the cases. Yeah, more than, I think around 50% of the panel yeah. decisions mm -hmm. uh, have, have involved uh, trade remedies or subsidies. So I think it's uh, very popular. And then you eventually ended up at the WTO. How was, how was that process? Yeah, so, so I came back to the investigating authority for one year and a half. And then from there, I, I, I was applying for jobs. And, uh, and I was recruited by the WTO. Um, was it out of your application like that? You just applied and... Yeah, I just applied. I had tried to, you know, to, to do internships and... Um, and to apply through, you know, regular means, electronic means, all the time without um, using mo a lot of contacts. So I never had an, a, you know, an insider. I knew I knew people indirectly, but you know, uh, I think it's difficult when they don't really know you um, that they agree to help you. And I never took classes with any of the of the lawyers who who recruit, which is which is um, you know, other schools have have the advantage that they they teach. Uh, and then they learn from the students and, and they learn from them and they, okay, so this guy's good, this, this girl's good, and they recruit them afterwards. I didn't have that advantage. So I was lucky that um, I, was, I was going to work in a, in a case that involved, I wouldn't like to, to, to say the details about the case, but basically it's a, it's a case that involved Spanish-speaking skills. All of the drafting and all of the case was, was in, in, English. in English, but... Um, but Looking at the... Evidence and sources. It was in Spanish. The information that uh, it was it was all in Spanish. It was all in Spanish. So, so I was lucky, you know, that my skills and my in the moment also I was I was in the right moment, and um, I was also lucky to be back to work under the supervision of an incredible lawyer, uh, Jorge Castro, who, in my point of view, I mean, he's probably the more the the best supervisor I've ever had. And that's saying too much because the one that I had when I was working for the Mexican government was outstanding. Um, but I think Jorge was was uh, the next level, um, technically speaking, and also uh, from a human standpoint, uh, his emotional intelligence and his management skills were really incredible. I, I learned a lot from him actually in that respect, and so I enjoyed working with him a lot. Was there something that you learned working inside the WTO Secretariat that maybe you were surprised? You know what? Uh, yes, I think positives and negatives. No? I think in, in any organization, <laughs> there's positives and negatives. Positives, I realize that the ta the, the 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 level of knowledge and, and skills of the lawyers who work at the WTO is very high. That's also something that I I agree with you, and I've seen it, and I've seen it even in comparison with other organizations. I think that the the skill and knowledge in the WTO is one of the highest in all of and across all organizations, and 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 I that and also the motivation. So imagine you know having the the skills and the knowledge, but then having the motivation. It's like having the motor, and I think this is um, it's an incredible community in my point of view. 
the WTO legal community is incredible. We're very motivated and for some reason we have been brainwashed. <laughs> and it's like a small world. Like uh, everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows everyone. <laughs> it's a really small world and I think it's a, it's a positive thing, you know? It's difficult to access, but once you're in... Yeah, that's also the thing, that because it's such close, tight-knit, it's difficult to break into. It's very true. That's very true. I think it's, a, it's an elite. Yeah. Even, even at the intern level. Yeah. You know, being recruited as an intern at the WTO, you need to have, uh, you need to have a master's degree. Sometimes even PhDs are asking me for ways into getting to WTO, and it's not a guarantee. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, it's uh, the competition is very high. Even for for getting an internship, it is and um, which was not always the case. I remember, I remember to, when I was at the WTO. I remember talking to Werner from the Applet body, and he told me that when he finished his LLM, which was probably around in Michigan, probably around the late 90s, he told me that he was recruited into the WTO just uh, after finishing his LLM, and he was even like, should I go, should I not go, what, what happened? Like, that's, that right now sounds like a fairy tale. It doesn't happen anymore like that. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, I think, I think nowadays, To get a job at the WTO, even as an intern, you have to be the best out of a hundred. And you also have more. to be lucky. And you also have to be lucky, to some extent. Because, uh, as I said, some of the, the people who recruit, some of them, they, they teach at this university. So, of course, you are at a disadvantage. Because there's a, you, have to, you have to be so good um, than, than, than someone has already some type of relationship with the recruiter. So, uh, whoever comes, I think, from... Whoever is recruited without having any any connection or any contact, it's he or she is an outstanding. Which was your case? Uh, yes, but in my in my case was also the, the being in the right place in the right time. I think because of of my language skills and my level of seniority, it was already it was already good. So yeah. In my case, it was also quite a similar story to to be an intern at the WTO. Because I just applied and forgot about it. And then like a couple of months later, I had forgotten about my application. And someone called me, uh, Victoria, Victoria Donaldson from the Applet Body. And he's like, are you interested in the Applet Body? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Ah, yes, I, I submitted an application. And yeah, that's how I got in. I didn't, I didn't know anyone. That's how it happened. Yeah. Which... Uh, I mean, you have an outstanding also career, no? I mean, starting... In yeah, but it was not... But it was not uh, Directly in international economic law, like my my training was in IP and maybe dispute settlement, and my experience, which, like I told you, it was a shock because there are so many people who devote their, like you, devote their professional life to this field. Mine was not the case. You were more into IP law, no? That's yeah, that, that was that was your. And I think it's still like one of my main. I feel passionately about it. Mm -hmm. About trade law, I like it and I enjoy it, but I don't think it's the same passion I feel. With IP? Yeah, but I mean, I don't want to talk about that. Sure, sure. No, no, it's fine. No, I understand that. I think we can have, we have the right to have several passions now. Well. Yeah, actually, uh, maybe, this is, maybe it's a good segue into this discussion. So you've spent your whole life, professional life, since you were in law school, dealing with these topics. Then you also went into your PhD, which you're doing at the Graduate Institute. But then you also, at the time, got the entrepreneur bug. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Um, 
And maybe tell us a bit more about your, your project. Sure. So the way it happened was, as a, as a WTO lawyer, there are only a few places where you can work. You can work, uh, of course, you can work in the WTO, but as I said, the competition is very high. And the chances of you getting a job are, you know, honestly very low. Um, but, uh, but then you can also work, you know, in Brussels. If you, can, you can also work in, in Washington, D.C. Those are the three main hubs for, for WTO legal practitioners. Or in your own government. Or in your own government, right? Uh, in my case, I didn't want to say in my government for a long time. I, I, I think I was, you know, I, I enjoy the experience and I enjoy working for an, uh, a really excellent, excellent uh, supervisor. Um, and I love the subject matter, but I think that the salaries were not very good. And I think I, I was, you know, I saw, I think it was good when I left, but then there's, there's at some point, you know, you, you want more, you know, you, you need more basically to, to have a better life. I mean, I, you know, so I, I had invested so much time into developing a W2 career that, you know, I didn't want to feel stuck. So I, I, for me, it was natural to go outside. And for me, it was going to one of these three places. And so, um, the, the, the problem that you face is, is that if you don't get a job at the WTO, then you have to, you pretty much stuck to work, to having to work for the private sector. But to work for the private sector in these cities, you need to have, you know, a specific nationality, which I didn't have. I'm not American, I'm not European, I'm not Swiss, right? So I, I'm 100% Mexican. I'm 100% <laughs> Mexican, right? More Mexican than the... Like me. Than, than the cactus or tequila. <laughs> like you. So, I guess... I guess so. So, so what I what I was, you know, what I the problem that I that was a problem, right? So, and I and I realized that the problem that I had was was also shared by many others. Um, like basically, everyone who is not from a European country, we face that problem. That's uh, Latin America, Africa, uh, Asia, indeed. sometimes even the U.S. Indeed, exactly, indeed. Uh, and so what I thought is, okay, so why don't we, it would be fantastic if I would have a platform, like just like Amazon, where I could sell my services online. That's what I thought. I was in Mexico and, and that's what I thought um, when I was there. I was like, why would I have to travel? I mean, my skills are with me. They belong to me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, walking, I'm a walking business myself. So why would I have to be hired by someone? Why would I have to, you know, become an expat, etc.? And so that, that's what came to my mind, and um, that was the seed that, you know, developed into, into, into what, uh, in the, the project that I'm, I'm trying to launch, which is called Enloya. Um, Enloya is not a WTO law platform at all. It's more, more geared towards general business law. So it's a platform where you can go and, uh, as a lawyer, you can submit your application, and then if your application is approved, then you have uh, the right to create a, a profile and then create packages that you can you can sell through the through the platform for a fixed fee, and then the rest works similarly to Amazon, where you 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 sell something and then you get reviewed publicly, and then you also have the right as a as a vendor to to review your uh, your client, and um, but we also. We also want, we're adding, we're working on, on, on adding a, sort of like a social media, a social network component, so that you can not only sell services, but you can also create teams 
um, on a case-by-case basis um, through the platform with, with other legal professionals. So I think the, the matching between buyers and sellers, but also the matching between buyers and uh, sellers and sellers as well, in this case lawyers and lawyers, so that they can create teams. And so that's, uh, that's the sort of like the, the problem and the solution. No? Um, and what happened in between was, you know, when, and this is something that that, um, that we we have we the two of us we we, we spoke about this, and you and you and I were yeah we've discussed it a lot. I'm curious to hear what were the what have have been like the greatest challenges that you've seen as an entrepreneur trying to build this from scratch. Well, the the most the most difficult thing is that we are truly trailblazers. I think that nowadays I realize it even more, uh, that there's nothing like us. I think there are similar things uh, like us. So they, we, there's platforms in, in specific countries, like in the US you have Avo, and in the Netherlands you have one platform, very good one by the way, it's called um, Dutch Legal or Legal Dutch. And then you have one in Spain called El Abogado. And then But then there's there's nothing like a global platform, right? Um, and nothing, um, and no platform that allows the direct interaction between the buyer and the seller. There's always the platform always in, intermediates the the relationship, and so um, so we, we we cannot copy directly from from legal existing legal platforms. So we to to be able to draw lessons. We we have have to go to you know uh, non-legal platforms like Fiverr, like Upwork, uh, that work in a similar way than what I have in the vision of a lawyer. Um, so it's just adapting the con their concepts into a lawyer. That's the, that's what we're doing. You know? But I think that become being the trade trailblazer is perhaps the most uh, difficult challenge. And and then the second challenge is convincing the lawyers to join, you know? I think that uh, the lawyers have, we are a very conservative industry. We are, we don't like, I mean, I think the idea even for me, being reviewed online is a little bit intimidating. Um, and I think that's, that's, a normal, that's a normal reaction, but I think in the future, the future has to be more transparent. And I think that um, the more transparent you are, the more, you know, uh, authentic, authentically interested your clients are going to be. And I think that the clients have a right to know more about you before they hire you. I think that there's a lack of transparency in, 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 that, in, in that matching between having a legal problem and, and, having, and, and finding a legal solution. You know, are you really good in that particular uh, And I think of the transparency area. regarding the fees. Many people don't Even if it's a company or a private person, they don't go to a lawyer because they're they're afraid. How much is it going to cost? Exactly. Uh, this is one of the fears that that everyone has. You know, even at the personal level, you you fear hiring a lawyer because you don't know at the end how much hiring a lawyer is going to cost you, right? So that's why in a lawyer we have followed. Uh, we're trying to bring what what's called the gig economy, which is what Fiverr platforms like Fiverr uh, have already brought. Um, for other types of work. So we're trying to bring that concept into the legal industry. And so the way, 
you know you know about this perhaps for the for the audience to kind of um, get a a general um, description of what the gig economy means for yep. the legal economy means that you you know you will create a pack uh, packages in your in your profile your packages will will have a fixed fee and a description you know specific uh, package specific terms and conditions and then uh, you have to deliver the the service within the time frame that you mentioned uh, at the price that you mentioned in advance so it's difficult for the lawyer to to build packages i think because they have to visualize okay so how much how much is this going to take me right it's not always easy to to foresee how how much uh, delivering a legal solution is going to is going to take you but i think it's visible you know i've been a lawyer in in many in several um, angles, and I, I can tell you that it's it's, it's possible. Even the, for the most sophisticated cases, it's possible, um, and it has huge benefits for for the buyers, for the clients, because they can they can know in advance how much something uh, is gonna is gonna cost them at the very end, and they they know exactly what they're gonna get at the very end. You already see this when you go to Amazon. But there, I mean, there's there's obvious clear. benefits for this, but there's also some drawbacks for. This whole gig economy, which is uh, the main one, being that uh, the service providers, uh, the ones who are providing the service within the platform, they have no no safety net to to take care of them. If something goes, they're not employees, they're not uh, they don't have all these social benefits. So how do you how do you see that? How how can you address this? Which is something that Uber, for example, has been fighting in many courts all over the place. That is a very good point that you're making. I think that uh, I think the gig economy in general is going to is going to be inserted into many industries, um, many service industries. You know, a lawyer is one example in the legal sector, but I think you you will see more of this concept being brought into into, into other sectors. And I think in the long run. In the long run, it's going to be beneficial, but it also, as you say, it carries some risks for the um, for the professionals, right? I think it's unfair. I think having a having a job, having a steady income, gives you, you know, psychological stability and you know, economical stability. You you know exactly how much you're going to get at the end of the month, and so that and you you have you're protected by social uh, security and and. You know, unemployment benefits, etc. Although that's not always the case for lawyers, like in Mexico, like lawyers who work in a law firm, sometimes often don't get these social benefits. But that's a different story. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now, but I think in the long run, that's a challenge that, as a platform, you have to you have to address. I think so you see this kind of like uh, it's just the beginning of this type of area that maybe needs to mature and needs to to, it needs to grow to and to. To find its footing, how it should be treated. Indeed, is I think the the gig economy platforms are, you know, have a disruptive effect on on sector on service sectors. Um, not necessarily in a good way. I think they have like um, destructive effects um, to some extent. But um, I think that's why you have to. The challenge of a platform is to to continue giving value to everyone. And so I think for me it doesn't make any sense to have, you know, uh, one million lawyers on on the lawyer platform, and only give value to a handful of them. For me it doesn't make any sense. For me I rather have a limited number of lawyers, and have a ratio of business lawyers that is that guarantees 
some some steady income, some steady flow of, of business um, for the lawyer. And I think that the lawyers... That also makes sense for them to be part of the platform. Exactly, that makes sense for them to have to be part of the platform. And so, I mean, in terms of social security and, 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 and those things, you know what, um, this is a challenge for us. I wouldn't have a, a definite res response in that respect. This is, I think the, the narrative is being uh, constructed. This is a, a very, very new concept. And so I think that, you know, there will be more regulation Uh, especially from from European Union, from the European Union, you will see more regulations putting putting breaks. Do you think I read uh, recently an article that was saying that uh, that really the only ones who are really regulating Silicon Valley are in Europe, mm -hmm. <laughs> not exactly. in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> a very good point. Now, now a crucial difference between the you know gig economy platforms and Uber platforms is that Uber fixes what the buyer gets at the end. They fix the price and they fix the, the service. And like you said, there's they there an intermediary it. between the two parties. Exactly. And in this case, there is not. And in Loya, we don't. And in general, in, in gig economy platforms, uh, platforms do not control the pricing and do not control the, the, the services that are delivered. So they don't commoditize, right? So, I think commoditizing is uh, it's super disruptive in my point of view, and I think that that leads to gaining lots of profits for a platform uh, with high costs for the sellers. Yeah, actually, this yeah, is a pretty really crucial difference. It's good that you pointed this mm -hmm. out. Um, in general, I'm also interested in hearing your views on how technology. How do you see technology disrupting the legal profession? It's already doing it. I think that, um, especially, especially in the business sector, if you're into contracts, I think if you are a serious contract lawyer, you need to use already artificial intelligence software that helps you to deliver better results to your client. And you know, I, I think that today, nowadays, if I am a if I am a client and I am familiar with these technologies existing. And if a lawyer is not using them, I will, you know, I would be, I would be, um, I wouldn't feel comfortable with a lawyer not using these technologies that are at her disposal, and that they should be, should be used, using them. But how do you see this in the medium and long run? How do you think it's gonna be? How, how do you think? I mean, it's difficult to say, but how do you see the landscape of a law firm working in five years? You think there's gonna be more lawyers? Are they gonna focus on specific tasks? And a bulk of the adult work is going to be done by by artificial intelligence, and the rest is going to be done by lawyers. Do you see like both cooperating together jointly? How do you see? It? Listen, I because I am into this sector, I, I I follow the legal technologies, technology companies, and I can tell you that legal technology has the potential to substitute WTO panelists. That's how advanced legal technology. That's the power of 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 legal technology. So you you mean like an algorithm? You input the the facts. Both parties input the facts, and then the algorithm is gonna do like it's computing, and it's gonna render the the decision. Um, it will take some time, right? Because it, every every dispute is is 
I guess uh, sp specific in the in the in the in the set of evidence and etc. Um, and perhaps you know legal technology would would not be able to render the final final report, but it will it, it can deliver a draft report that's eighty percent ready for for the for the panelists and the lawyers advising a panel. Uh, just to review, make sure that everything is okay, that all of the evidence that uh, was submitted is is, um, is is being considered in a proper way, all the jurisprudence that exists for the relevant issues are have been considered. Um, and so, you know, but I know this by, because I, I have been following this topic for a long time now, uh, but before, before I was not aware of I was never aware of, of this power. I, th I thought that, I always believed that legal technology didn't have the, the capacity to, to substitute uh, war litigation work, where there's a, there's a component of creativity. Um, but the reality is, is different. Uh, I have seen that, you know, artificial intelligence, you can make chatbots that respond to very sophisticated legal questions um, based on a given set of facts. And so, um, for legal technology to to deliver the results that I'm I'm sort of foreseeing, I'm uh, contemplating them um, to the point that you know a WTO panel can be substituted. Uh, the, the the process of a of a proceeding has to change, right? So every all, everything has to be digitized. So the content of an exhibit has to be digitized. You know the the, the text. In, in a law has to has to become data, right? The, the the text in a press report has to become data. All of those things have to become data. Which is already happening to a large extent as right now. Yeah, but, but you have to take it to the next level. You have to take it to the next level. I think that once the information that is submitted to to a judge is digitized, all of the all of the information that is delivered to a judge it can be digitized you can crawl the data through artificial intelligence and, and natural language processing to a point that a, a decision can actually be rendered. Um, I, have, I have, you know, I think it's pretty scary to some extent, right? Because it means that um, we can be substituted. And so what's left for us is, you know, the, the top of the iceberg, you know, you, you know work that that, that is incredibly sophisticated can indeed not be not be substituted. I think that uh, people who are extremely skilled, they won't be substituted. But I think that the new generation of lawyers, um, you know, are going to face that reality. And 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 the truth is that you know you might want to think, oh well, these changes are going to come in in the in the very long term in 20 years but that's not that's not the case even if it's 20 years it's pretty short <laughs> exactly <laughs> 20 years is pretty short but, so then based on this what would be your recommendation for lawyers who are currently working and maybe for even those students like how would legal education need to change to to take this into account i think in in the future just the way you you have um, common subject classes that it doesn't matter which if you study law or economics or international relations etc everyone has to take when you're in university I think you have to add um, some coding classes 
some data analytics classes. So everyone has to learn how to code. Everyone is going to have to learn how to build simple algorithms uh, and to manage data. I think that if you can do that, then you know the chances of you being substituted are are going to be much lower because you will be able to you know handle data and and, and obtain insights from that data uh, that wouldn't be possible to obtain if if an expert doesn't process that data. So I think in the future, not today, right? But I think in the future, the new the newer generations, perhaps in the you know the the ones who start WTO law. Not, not. Um, you know what? And I don't want to. I don't want to make an emphasis on WTO law. I think. Um, this, this just to in general. Yeah. In general, as a lawyer, you need to learn. You're going. There's a need to learn these technical skills. That if you thought that you you studied law to avoid them, <laughs> that's not going to be the case anymore. You're going to have to to learn at least the basics, and to not not only that, but also to learn how to use the the software, and the technology that's being created to. To handle um, to handle data, there, there's a bunch of it. So you just have to just the way you know, you learn how to, how to use Word and Excel, you're gonna have to learn how to use one of these softwares. Which it's this uh, environment that you describe it's a bit scary, but at least I feel a bit optimistic about your your view of how we can work around it and incorporate it into our our work to somehow not be completely displaced. Yeah, I mean, it, not, ev not, not everything is black or white, no? I think there's a... We're, I mean, I'm talking about the future. I mean, I cannot predict the future. But this is how I see the tendency, no? And, and, um, and I think that, you know, in any case, I think that, you know, human species has been We have been here for you know millenniums and we're pretty resilient. Yeah, we're pretty resilient, and we'll 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 adapt. I'm sure. Well, Manuel, it has been really interesting talking to you. Thank you for accepting my invitation. Any parting words? No, thank you very much for the invitation. I think it was a, it was a pleasure to be to be with you today this uh, fresh morning. Um, I'm looking forward to 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 meeting you again uh, over lunch or something <laughs> <laughs> thank you Manuel thank you